0: that the United States has to be more aggressively involved in changing underlying conditions in the world. Now, it's gotten very little attention, perhaps because Republican president, who previously was skeptical of foreign aid, now doubles foreign aid budget, is just not a story that jives with the current spin on things. But nonetheless, if you go to Washington, there are a lot of people who are now worried about how the United States measures governance how it judges how countries are doing in order to tap into a significant new source of development financing. And finally, the Bush administration is quickly rebuilding the diplomatic apparatus of the United States, which atrophied over a series of years. Those changes were going on before September 11th, but they have to some degree accelerated. Now, the world's a complicated place, and just because you have a policy or even a morality doesn't mean you can implement it immediately. Uh, We have lots of interests, we have lots of constraints. an anecdotal story is that the axis of evil was originally Iran, Iraq, and Syria, but it couldn't be all Muslim, so therefore Syria's out, North Korea's in. Uh, that reflects the reality of the world in which every American administration operates. You can't do everything you want to do. Are there lots and lots of other regimes out there which are bad? Yes, indeed, there are. Does Iraq, for the reasons Aaron Friedberg just uh, said, uh, qualify as an especially dangerous threat? It probably does. Are there contradictions in American foreign policy? Is Saudi Arabia at once a fundamentalist state in which significant elements support terrorism, but which at the same time provides the United States with lots of oil? Absolutely. You cannot just change American foreign policy in one bold stroke. However, when a president is pushing, he can make not only marginal changes, but quite significant changes over time, even though the world is complicated and there are lots and lots of constraints. And you have an administration now which is pushing on a particular level, and it will change American foreign policy in significant ways, although it will not change all of American foreign policy, Overnight. Now, what about our allies? And I'll finish here. Um, We have new allies and we have old allies. I will say that from Washington's perspective, the most significant development in Europe over the last decade has been the atrophy of European military forces which are seen as increasingly not on the same page as American military forces. And therefore, those countries which either are in theater or which have forces that can fight with us are our allies in this new particular war. I'll conclude by saying this. The ancients said, be careful who you choose as enemies because you will become more like them. In a war fought in the twilight, Against people who are willing to kill large numbers of civilians, the challenge to American foreign policy and our legal system is absolutely clear. I'm relatively sympathetic to the Bush administration because I think this is very early days and a challenge that is quite profound and goes to the roots of our foreign policy. I will say that one meter of success and one indication that the administration is developing a foreign policy which is mature in the face of challenge is if it can define not only who it fights against, but what victory means, not only in the short term against al-Qaeda and Iraq, but in the long term against terrorism. Thank you.
1: turn it over to uh, Professor McNamara, but I want to apologize uh, to those of you in the bowls. You have been sitting in the darkness uh, without sound. Uh, I hope you're back on, and thank you for your patience. Uh, None of you here obviously applied to medical school almost by definition uh, for the graduates, but it flashed through my mind. You remember the uh, stress test that were supposed to be part of a medical school interview? I thought this must be a stress test for a new dean. Can we go... forward uh, in the dark. But the lights are back on, uh, and again, for those of you in the bowls, thanks for your patience. Professor Martin.
2: Thank you very much. Well, the title of this um, session today was Legacies of September 11th, and I want to talk about one legacy in particular, and that's the legacy which is wrapped around a sort of conventional wisdom, um, which has surfaced uh, at the moment. The conventional wisdom runs sort of like this. Um, we're at a historically low point for U.S.-EU relations. Uh, September 11th and the subsequent foreign policy moves of the Bush administration have created a serious rift in the transatlantic relationship. So if I were to sort of play out a little bit this conventional wisdom and offer you a sort of caricature of this viewpoint... It would run something like this. The Europeans look at the U.S. and see us engaged or about to be engaged in what they view as reckless unilateralism. Um, they look at the U.S. and they see a trajectory in the Bush administration, perhaps, which runs from early policies on global warming and Kyoto through the International Criminal Court up to today the U.S.'s uh, contemplation of a preemptive strike against Iraq. Um, The Europeans uh, might argue that the U.S. is seeking to replace norms of collective security and multilateral defense with something um, quite different, with unilateral aggression, which might provoke further conflict without uh, actually resolving the key issues that face us. On the other side of the Atlantic, from the U.S. perspective, following in this sort of conventional wisdom, uh, we might argue that the U.S. in in turn looks at Europe and sees... Europeans, which are uh, happy to let the U.S. do the hard work while they sit on the sidelines. Um, Europeans, which are happy to sort of take the moral high ground while passing the buck, as usual. Um, The result of this sort of conventional wisdom, uh, which has been circulating, is a concern that today we're at a point where we can no longer ignore fundamental differences of goals and strategies uh, between these two very close uh, allies, and that the uh, events after September 11th may in fact drive a wedge between the U.S. and the EU uh, that is so deep that the Europeans will begin to move away from their historic relationship with the U.S., armed with uh, a single foreign policy, a developing military capability, their own new currency, that the European Union may start to assert some sort of geopolitical power on the international stage and that that power may not necessarily mirror U.S. national interests. All right. In order to evaluate whether this conventional wisdom is, in fact, correct, I think there are two key questions, which I'd like to to briefly discuss today. The first question is, how serious really is this transatlantic rift? The second key question is, is the EU likely to come together to challenge the U.S. as a power in the international system? And let me give you the answers uh, in brief form before I go through my detailed argument. So my answers would be to the first question, um, is this a serious rift between the U.S. and the E.U.? Not really. It's not as serious as the rhetorical claims make it out to be, Um, that the U.S. and the E.U. continue to be bound both by pragmatic concerns and by similar ideals and values. The second question, is the EU likely to become a peer competitor to the United States and the international system with over the next uh, decade or so? I would argue that the EU is not likely to challenge the U.S. in a traditional sense in terms of balance of power. but that the EU is developing its own political identity, uh, one which we we in the United States should take seriously. And this political identity, I would argue, is based on a different type of diplomacy and engagement, um, that we may be seeing a division of labor evolving between this more traditional superpower, the United States, and what uh, Professor Moravchek of Harvard has has argued is a civilian power within the the EU. All right, let me go through in more detail uh, this argument. Number one, how serious is this rift? Okay, definitely the, the rhetoric is there, right? Um, but we don't see concrete evidence of a true break with U.S. policy so far on the part of the Europeans. We can break this question into sort of three different levels. First, public opinion. Second, policymakers; And third, political elites. What's happening on the European side in the way they think about the United, the United States? Well, first on public opinion, what does the mass public think about uh, the United States and its foreign policy stance? Um, There was a very comprehensive survey, which has just been released, which polls uh, EU nationals and U.S. citizens. Um, It was done by the German Marshall Fund and the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, which actually shows a surprising similarity in terms of um, a lot of viewpoints on where we are in a post-9-11 world. Um, On both sides, in the U.S. and the EU, citizens do see terrorism as as a clear and overriding important threat. There's actually quite uh, solid support for an attack on Iraq on both sides, but only with U.N. approval and the co-decision making of allies. It's the same both on the European and the American sides. Um, Similarity, there's also little support on either side of the Atlantic for unilateral U.S. action. Ten percent in the EU support a unilateral attack uh, by the U.S. on Iraq, 20 percent in the U.S., However, divisions do exist in the publics between these these two sides of the Atlantic. Um, Europeans are more critical of President Bush's foreign policy and have a tendency to see overall U.S. policy as partly to blame for the attacks of 9-11. Europeans also like the idea of a superpower status for the EU, particularly in France, 91% support this idea, Um, and only 48% in Germany support this idea, whereas Americans are obviously more ambivalent about the idea of a true sharing of power and responsibility across the Atlantic. However, I would argue looking at this polling data and uh, thinking through sort of the historic uh, relationship, we actually see a tremendous amount of convergence uh, within the EU polity and the U.S. polity at the public level. Also, at the level of policymakers, the second level, we actually see uh, a reasonably effective, routinized, close cooperation between U.S. policymakers and EU officials, particularly on issues of internal security and policing, issues which, generally speaking, are very difficult to uh, engage internationally. We've actually seen quite good cooperation, perhaps better than that we've seen between the FBI and the CIA, in fact. Um, On economic issues, we also see continued Cooperation between the EU and the U.S. Despite the steel import fiasco, things are going ahead in the WTO, and a new trade round is going forward. The level of political elites. This is. Um, this is. This is a little more mixed, I would say, um, in terms of the heads of state and government in the EU. There's a tremendous amount of variation. On one hand, we have staunch support uh, from Tony Blair. On the other hand, we hear that uh, the German Chancellor Schroeder is running against Bush in his campaign. He's uh, speaking out very stridently against American foreign policy. But most of the political elites, I would say, in the EU at the moment seem to be somewhere in the middle between those two positions. And this is sort of represented by the French position, uh, Chirac's emphasis on using the UN and the Security Council to respond to the development of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Now, the real test of this riff, of course, would happen if the U.S. does go ahead and attack Iraq without going through these channels of legitimation of its allies in the Security Council. Now, the European hope very much seems to be, particularly over the last few days, that Bush will seek to legitimate his war efforts. It was interesting, today um, I subscribed to an EU news service, uh, um, which comes out on email from the Commission, and the very lead article, the very top headline, uh, was, Bush admits the U.S. needs partners. And they're referring to his uh, New York Times op-ed today, which if you look at sort of the sixth or seventh paragraph somewhere buried deep down inside the article, there is a discussion about uh, the importance of working through uh, their traditional allies and so on. But I think that this is the sense on the part of many Europeans is that hopefully it will uh, work out. Okay. So question two, what does all this signify for the future of American and European power? Is Europe truly developing its own capacity? Um, Might it truly become a, a superpower? Um, On sort of material factors alone, the evidence is very convincing. The U.S. obviously dominates militarily and economically. Um, But I would argue that internally within the EU, we've actually seen a tremendous development of policymaking capacity, um, which has enabled the EU to act effectively on the international stage in in certain areas. Um, The EU has promoted democracy and development um, through the use of trade, foreign aid, peacekeeping missions. worth noting that Europeans outnumber U.S. troops by 10 to 1 in current peacekeeping operations. Um, the, US, the EU has also used uh, membership in the EU as a carrot to promote regime change, institutional change, democracy, capitalism uh, throughout Central and Eastern Europe. Um, so it may be most useful to conclude, um, to think about the post 9-11 world as showing us two different ways of acting on the international stage and perhaps a certain division of labor in the international system. One, a more traditional superpower, which is the U.S. today. The global political reality is that it can act unilaterally. The second is a Europe which is more oriented towards multilateral long-term solutions. And personally, I would argue that the European perspective certainly does have a lot of merit, and I would hope that the President heeds the call of the EU, and in fact, many of his own citizens, in pursuing uh, actions with the agreement and support of our allies and the UN. Thank you very much.
1: lawyer in me cannot resist pointing out the 10 to 1 figure, 10 European peacekeepers for one American peacekeeper, but we're the ones resisting the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court uh, for peacekeepers. That by way of uh, introducing Professor Hitz, but also to tell you he is one of my few fellow lawyers on the faculty.
3: Thank you, Anne-Marie, and welcome. Uh, I'm going to add add a little more controversy perhaps to this discussion that has uh, been part of it thus far. I've been tasked to talk about the USA Patriot Act and generally about civil liberties in this war on terrorism. And let me just start off by paraphrasing uh, President Clinton. If you're speaking about war, it depends upon what the definition of war is. And in this instance,
4: I think we could
3: have a discussion uh, fully of an hour or longer about whether or not, despite this horrible loss of life and this extraordinary destruction that took place a year ago today, we are engaged in a war. I think we could argue just as easily that we are involved in a national emergency, a national police action. Uh, in which we are trying to fight, hopefully with our allies, against uh, terrorism uh, and its effect on our shores and abroad. But it doesn't necessarily have to have been called a war. Now, if you look carefully at the resolution passed by the Congress of the United States on the 14th of September... It is not a declaration of war, but for all practical purposes, it gives the president all the power that he needs. It authorizes him to use whatever force is necessary to uh, avenge the uh, attacks of September 11, bring al-Qaeda and the terrorists uh, to the bar uh, or uh, uh, to justice. In that sense, uh, there is no question about uh, the full measure of authority that the President has to pursue what he has chosen to label a war. But in doing so, does he have the right, as a former colleague of mine, the former Deputy Attorney General of the United States, a colleague of Anne Marie, former colleague of Anne Marie's at the Harvard Law School, Phil Hyman has written, does he the absolute discretion with respect to American citizens, To hold them without charging them, without uh, uh, stating the reason for which they're being held, and not permit them uh, the advice of counsel? I think not. And here is where we're going to see, and I don't know, because one of the things we're going to have to wait and see is not only how the lower courts deal with these issues, but how they are resolved as these cases are doubtlessly going to be appealed up to the Supreme Court, uh, uh, and uh, I think most of you know that in the context of a national emergency or a war, the courts, the third branch of government, uh, is very reluctant to interfere with executive prerogative in the, exercises, uh, in the exercise of its rights. But this new term, and I do think there has to be a new term, this new term of unlawful combatant, If that is affixed to an American citizen uh, without any further description of what that may mean or what the uh, activity was that brought forth the designation, and if that person is placed in incarceration without access to a lawyer, I think that is going to strain very much the fabric of constitutional interpretation of the rights that normally obtain in this case, and I think you'd have to conclude that it will be only under... The pressure of a wartime situation, more broadly defined, uh, that courts will even countenance on the arguments. It's interesting to see what's happening in the courts in Virginia, my home state. Uh, there's a Reagan appointee on the bench in the district court in Norfolk who's asked the Justice Department to come forward and say, all right, you say he's an unlawful combatant. Why? Just give me some reasons. Likewise, uh, the remarkable uh, judge in the district Court in the di- in the District of Columbia, Gladys Kessler has said, "We have a year has gone by in her case, maybe 340 days. Uh, we need to know the bases on which you are detaining uh, not only uh, American citizens but green card holders and other aliens who are here uh, under ca- uh, color, color of uh, some visa documentation." Now, I want to switch to something that. Uh, I have more of a personal stake in, and that is the USA PATRIOT Act and its impact on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, an act I had a hand in drafting in in, in its original version. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was passed in 1978 to deal with a situation where the uh, American telecommunications companies, principally AT&T, were discontinuing their cooperation with the FBI in the pursuit of uh, uh, spies and other uh, unlawful. Uh, 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 what terrorism wasn't the issue there. It was usually in, it was in the context of espionage because. Lower courts had found that the FBI did not have the authority uh, on its own say-so to command this kind of uh, support uh, from uh, at and And so the government said if we want to obtain the information against uh, spies in the United States, we're going to have to set up a procedure whereby a permission can be granted, a warrant can be granted, Uh, In cases of intelligence gathering, that doesn't pass through the normal channels of uh, fully debated uh, uh, arguments when uh, it's a question of a U.S. magistrate or or a regular judicial proceeding granting the permissions. But the purposes of the surveillance is for intelligence purposes. If the individual whom you are seeking, whose phone you are seeking to tap, or whose premises you're seeking to invade is, and the the, uh, language of art was, an agent of a foreign power, then we will grant permission to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Court, a special court of senior judges sitting, interestingly enough, in the Justice Department, that's where their little uh, secure courtroom is, to grant those permissions. Uh, and it will be done on an ex-party basis. That is, the government will alone be presenting the arguments. And you should know that in the the history of this court, they have never turned down the government's petition uh, for uh, a warrant. Now, that uh, matter was laid out before us uh, almost a month ago by the Chief Judge Royce Lamberth, who said, now under the USA Patriot Act, where the argument is that in order to obtain a FISA court uh, permission, uh, the individual against whom you are seeking to uh, place the tap or enter into a surveillance uh, measure uh, it does not have to be uh, uh, the sole purpose of his activity, uh, does not have to be, have been as an agent of a foreign power. But a substantial or a significant purpose uh, uh, is as an agent of a foreign power, and the definition has been expanded to include terrorist. Once again, I think reasonable people can differ on uh, the nature of the expansion of this uh, definition. But what is at stake, as far as Judge Lambert is concerned and the FISA court, is that the barrier that they thought had always existed between using this information for intelligence-gathering purposes and intelligence-gathering purposes against terrorists as much as regular spies has been broken, and that the government is now arguing that it wants to use this information obtained through a bobtailed warrant procedure in a criminal proceeding. That is going to be a very interesting argument. And as you know, just in the past week or so, which is a very... (laughs) We talk about Star Chamber and unusual procedure, uh, the judgment of the full FISA court, which Judge Lamberth uh, announced uh, a month ago, has been appealed to a special tribunal of three senior appellate court judges with only the Justice Department making the argument, nobody representing John Q. Citizen, much less the the spies of the terrorists, uh, to uh, argue what uh, should be the limitations under the USA Patriot Act for this uh, information. So tune in next week or next month. Uh, But you can tell from the way I put it, I think that bright line that should exist between gathering information for purposes of Uh, stopping the Terrorist Act for knowing what the intelligence plan is and using it in a criminal prosecution should be maintained. I do agree with the language in the Patriot Act that permits the sharing of grand jury testimony uh, by the FBI with uh, elements of the intelligence community. In fact, the Patriot Act doesn't limit it just to the intelligence community. It says customs and immigration can get the information as well. But I think, again, that should be used for the purposes of breaking terrorist nets. It should be used for intelligence purposes, and uh, there should be strict Attorney General guidelines uh, that uh, are in force here. Let me conclude by saying that I have no doubt in my mind that were the United States to experience another major domestic terrorist attack like the Trade Towers. These concerns about civil liberties, these concerns about uh, the limits of uh, procedure would probably go out the flue. Ho- hopefully, heaven forfend that we face that kind of uh, big attack again. I'm aware of the fact that these are very precarious rights. But let me just, in an anecdotal way, tell you uh, what we're dealing with here. Uh, I had the pleasure of speaking to the Medina Seminar, uh, which takes place in Princeton each June. Uh, uh, It's an assemblage of state and federal court judges who come and listen to our superb faculty talk about a range of subjects from the fine arts to uh, history and politics. And my subject was terrorism towards the end, and we were talking about some of these early decisions. And a senior person raised his hand at the back of the room, who was a senior judge in Atlanta, I believe, and he said, you know, it's very interesting. After September 11, I and a number of my colleagues in this region got together and we placed a phone call to the Attorney General. He said, look, we've had a lot of experience dealing with petitions for warrants, uh, for surveillance permissions. We are willing to go anywhere the government wishes on our own time and sit for these applications. They were patriots too, and the answer was, "Don't call us; we'll call you." So you've got out there uh, amongst the judiciary a feeling that uh, there are extraordinary issues at stake here, and I will be very surprised if we don't see some rulings that uh, uh, would uh, bear that out. Let me finish with the point I said uh, at the begin—I made at the beginning. It's a long process, uh, the law. Uh, It grinds fine, but it grinds slowly. And uh, it could well be that uh, when some of these cases reach the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, the the decision may be, as it has in past times, that the executive is entitled to a great deal of latitude in dealing with these issues. Uh, I think that's understandable. So we'll have to wait and see. Thank you.
1: Those of you who are interested in following up the legal issues, Professor Hitz is teaching a seminar with Professor Eisgruber on the legal issues of terrorism in the spring. I'm planning to make uh, cameo appearances. Uh, I just want to uh, uh, add a point, I think, to to the dangers, not only of using evidence to convict these defendants that we would not accept here, but also of condoning methods of extracting evidence, e.g. torture, uh, On the part of other governments, we're certainly not practicing torture, but we are getting evidence from other governments whom we know full well are using those methods. That's a major challenge for us, for our legal system uh, and also for our foreign policy. So we managed to have two political scientists give you a presentation without either of them referring to a two-by-two matrix, which has got to be a first. Uh, However, Professor Kruger is confirming um, the, uh, the stereotype or my stereotype of economists he is managed, he's going to present us real data with a PowerPoint presentation.
5: Uh, thanks. We'll see if I can use a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs>
2: yeah.
5: That works. Um, let me begin by saying that to have an effective policy to try to combat terrorism, uh, it's very helpful to have a good understanding of the causes Uh, of terrorism. And uh, right after September 11th, a number of prominent uh, people, uh, George Bush, uh, George McGovern, uh, James Wolfinson from the World Bank, uh, all drew a connection between poverty and terrorism. And that's probably quite a natural reaction. Uh, So together with a professor of uh, history and Middle Eastern expert from Charles University, I've been looking at uh, whether education and poverty uh, have a causal connection to terrorism. Uh, And you can see President Bush, uh, who was at first reluctant to draw a connection between poverty and terrorism, said in Monterey, I think when he announced the Millennium Challenge accounts, uh, we fight against poverty because hope is an answer to terror. Uh, The president uh, now has a more nuanced view, and I'll I'll come back to that, but he laid that out uh, in the New York Times uh, this morning. Uh, The bottom line from the work we've been doing uh, is that any connection between education, poverty, and terrorism is indirect complicated and probably quite weak uh... now i say that i also am shamelessly advertising a book that i wrote called <laughs> education <Matters." laughs> Um i believe education is actually probably the most important variable for economic growth um, and it's one of the best understood uh... inputs uh, in in economics uh... so i believe education has many many positive uh, impacts including economic growth health uh, reduction of poverty and so on. Uh, I don't believe, however, it has much of a connection uh, to poverty uh, to terrorism. Uh, and I'll explain uh, uh, how I get there. I'm going to review some public opinion surveys uh, from the West Bank and Gaza Strip, an analysis that we've done of uh, participation in Hezbollah, an analysis of uh, the Israeli underground, uh, as well as a new analysis of looking across countries all in the next 10 minutes. The uh, work uh, from the public opinion polls, and I should stress that uh, public opinion uh, is different very different from participation, but it does give an indication of where support is uh, for terrorism. Um, The data that I've looked at comes from the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research. Uh, This is an organization in Ramallah uh, that periodically conducts polls. They conducted a poll December 19th through 24th, which was after September uh, 11th, but uh, before uh, Israel's major incursion into the West Bank. Uh, And uh, in this uh, survey, they uh, interviewed 1,300 Uh, Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza Strip who are age 18 and over. It was a very well-done survey. These were uh, conducted in-house. And in the midst of a curfew, an employee from uh, that organization provided me with some quest tabulations that I'll show you. Uh, So what I asked for was some of the key questions uh, that were asked in the survey broken down by the education and occupation of the respondents. Uh, One question asked concerning armed attacks against Israeli targets I support or strongly support, oppose or strongly oppose. Uh, And you can see several things here. First, uh, support for these attacks is widespread. And I should also point out, this question followed a question uh, about whether uh, they believed attacks were efficacious, which uh, was uh, quite a common view, which I think supports something that Jeff said earlier about uh, when people believe a tactic works, they're more supportive of the tactic. Uh, And the other point I should make is the previous questions uh, strongly suggested they had in mind civilian and military targets. So that's the way I would have, uh, 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 that's the way I would believe most people responded to this question. Um, And you can see that there's not that strong a pattern by education, but if anything, those who are illiterate are less supportive of terrorist attacks, attacks against Israeli targets, than are those who have a high school degree or higher. Uh, The gap is 68 points for those who have a high school degree or higher support versus oppose, versus 46% gap for the illiterates. Uh, likewise, when we break down the data by occupation, uh, we find, first of all, that the students are the most supportive, the most most radicalized. And remember, these are respondents 18 and over, so we're talking primarily about college students. Uh, the unemployed were the least supportive. Uh, I was surprised to see the results for the merchants and the professionals, Uh, although in the uh, previous entifada, uh, it was merchants and professionals who were also uh, uh, very supportive. Uh, And the housewives were really quite surprising. 82% of housewives uh, said that they support or strongly support armed attacks against Israeli targets, uh, which I thought was a a rather remarkable and sad statistic. Uh, Now, I should point out that the population that was surveyed does not believe uh that these attacks are terrorist acts. Um, like Fred said, it depends on one's definition of terrorism. Uh and they were given some examples, uh like uh the bombing of the Dolphinarium nightclub, a suicide bombing attack uh within uh Israel. Uh and a vast majority did not consider that to be a terrorist act. Uh, it suggests that it's very important in talking about language uh... what is uh, uh... the language that we use and i realize that there is a a, a good deal of arbitrariness uh... to how ter- terrorism is defined as well uh... but by the way i should also point out since it's september eleventh in the same poll a majority didn't consider the september eleventh attacks on the world trade center to be terrorism either
4: um,
5: There's some evidence on whether economic conditions were getting better or getting worse before uh, the latest intifada. And you can see the situation was improving. Uh, Most people said that uh, their uh, economic uh, conditions were improving, and they were also optimistic for the future. So this doesn't look like a case where uh, things were deteriorating or people thought that things weren't getting better fast enough. Um, The evidence suggests that uh, uh, people were uh, becoming more optimistic about the future. And the objective evidence suggests that unemployment was declining and the economy was improving uh, prior to the beginning of the Antifada in September of 2000. Uh, Now, there's some evidence, some biographical evidence of who participates uh, in terrorism in the uh, uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, Nasra Hassan, who is a relief worker for the United Nations, uh, conducted over 250 interviews uh, with militants and associates involved in the Palestinian cause in the late 90s, and she wrote this wonderful article in The New Yorker uh, where she said, uh, none of them were uneducated, desperately poor, simple-minded, or depressed. Many were middle class, and unless they were fugitives held paying jobs, two were the sons of millionaires. Um, Now, much of the evidence that exists is kind of anecdotal uh, like this. Um, So what we tried to do in our study was to get some uh, more concrete data And to do this, we looked at Hezbollah. Hezbollah has a newsletter where they publish biographies on uh, uh, their shahids, on those who were killed uh, in martyrdom operations. Uh, And uh, Eli Hurwitz, who is uh, right now a a lecturer at Tel Aviv University, uh, called through these uh, biographies, and he provided us with the data. And then we combined them with population survey uh, data on 120,000 people Uh, age 15 to 38 from the Lebanese population uh... uh, from the Lebanese population and housing survey now there's some serious problems with these data I should emphasize Uh, first of all not all of the 129 members of Hezbollah who were killed in action were involved in activities that uh, most people would consider terrorism. Uh, a fair description is probably resistance of many of those activities. Some were involved in bombing the U.S. Embassy, uh, a suicide bombing attack against the U.S. Embassy in uh, uh, Beirut, or the U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut, but others were involved in trying uh, to defeat uh, an invading force. Um, uh, It's not clear whether the sample is representative of uh, Hezbollah. On the other hand, I should point out about a third Don't ask me where I get this estimate from. But about a third uh, uh, of Hezbollah at that time was believed to have been killed. So these represent probably about a third of Hezbollah in the early 80s. And there are problems with the data. Uh, There are also problems with the population survey that we compare it to. So uh, uh, take these conclusions with some grain of salt. Uh, Nevertheless, what we find is that the members of Hezbollah who were killed in action uh, were actually a little less likely to have uh, been living in poverty. Twenty-eight uh, percent of uh, the Hezbollah militants were uh, below the poverty line uh, in Lebanon. Thirty-three percent of the Lebanese population. If we limit the sample just to those who were in the heavily Shiite regions, because Hezbollah is a, uh, a, a Shiite organization, uh, then the gap is even bigger. Uh, here there's not a statistically significant difference. Uh, if we look by education, again, we find uh, that members of Hezbollah were actually better educated than uh, the Lebanese population the same age. And I've done uh, some uh, more rigorous statistical analyses of these data, and those conclusions tend to hold up. Uh, Now, Hezbollah, I should emphasize, is a multifaceted organization. Uh, Last week, Richard Armitage, the Deputy Secretary of State, had kind of a cryptic comment where he said Hezbollah is the A-team of terrorists. Al-Qaeda is the B-team. It's not... Still not clear to me what he meant by that. <laughs> Hezbollah uh, does uh, many things. They have a militant wing. Uh, they also have a wing that provides education and that provides hospitals. Uh, they're, they're now a political party uh, in Lebanon. Um, so, um, you know, I think one has to be careful about generalizing too much uh, from from these results. Uh, we also looked, and I'm sure you'll have trouble reading this, at uh, members of the Israeli underground. Uh, which uh, conducted several terrorist acts uh, against the Palestinian population, mostly in the West Bank. They also had a failed attempt to blow up the Dome of the Rock uh, Mosque. Uh, And we were able to assemble uh, the occupations of all 27 members uh, of Gush Eminem, which was the main organization, Uh, and they come overwhelmingly from uh highly paid highly educated occupations uh, they include teachers engineers computer programmers geographers a former combat pilot uh, so on the other side of uh of, of the uh, uh divide here uh, we find the same kind of uh profile uh, interestingly there was a report that the library of congress report uh, Library of Congress prepared for the CIA in 1999, uh, which got a lot of attention recently. It's called the Sociology and Psychology of Terrorism. And uh, in this report, they went through profiles of different terrorists, and they concluded that terrorists are becoming better educated. And from that, they inferred that terrorists uh, are going to be able to uh, perform more sophisticated acts, more deadly acts of terrorism. Uh, and in this report, they even foresaw the possibility of terrorists taking an airplane and slamming it into the White House. Uh, it was buried in that report. I had uh, I tell you, I had to use the uh, uh, control f key to search through the whole document to find it. Um, but uh, this, th- this profile seems to be uh, what uh, had what, what generally been found, although often with less rigorous types of analyses. Now, it's certainly possible that within a country, those who join terrorist organizations uh, tend to be uh, the better educated, the most involved. A- and when we look across countries, maybe it's the poorer countries uh... that uh, have terrorism and in fact this is the view that george bush seems to be coming around to in the paper today he said poverty does not transform poor people into terrorists and murderers yet poverty corruption and repression are a toxic combination in many societies uh, leading to weak governments uh, that are unable to enforce uh, order or patrol their borders etc uh, so the most recent work i've been doing looks across countries And uh, using data that was assembled by the State Department, originally uh, given to them by the CIA, um, I've been analyzing uh... the origins of, of terrorists and uh, looking across 135 countries and we have information on gdp per capita uh... freedom houses freedom index uh, religious fractionalization and population and what do i find well i won't bore you with the details of the model but basically looking across country when we control for these other variables there's no no relationship between gdp per capita uh, and uh, the number of terrorist, uh, terrorist events uh, caused by people from those countries. Uh, we do find a pretty strong relationship, however, between this measure of political and uh, uh, civil liberties, Uh, political freedom and civil liberties. Uh, Countries that have more freedom are less likely uh, to have uh, citizens who uh, conduct uh, terrorist acts. Uh, Now, I read President Bush's uh, line in the newspaper today suggesting that there should be an interaction between income and uh, 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 how free a country is. Um, And statistically, I can tell you there is none. Um, not even at a p value of like 0.3 or 0.4. Um, so uh, it looks to me like if you were going to kind of ask for a characterization of a country, a character of a country which is related uh, to uh, support for terrorism, it looks like uh, political freedom is the one I would focus on. So let me just conclude uh, by saying uh, terrorism, uh, from what we've done, should be viewed as a violent political act, not as a response. Uh, to economic conditions. Uh, it's probably common to think of terrorism the way we think of common criminals, and I think that's wrong. Uh, suicide bombers don't appear to be people who have few economic or educational opportunities. In fact, it looks like it's the opposite. And I think both the supply side and the demand side push in that direction. You see, this will sound like economics. On the supply side, uh, if you think of terrorism as being like political engagement, well, who becomes engaged politically? It tends to be people who are better educated, higher income, can concern themselves with more than just mere survival. And on the the demand side, it looks like the terrorist organizations uh, want people who will succeed, uh, and especially when it comes to international terrorism. That means people who are well-educated and can fit into different societies. Uh, so I think that there are many reasons to improve education and reduce poverty, uh, but uh, reducing ter- terrorism is probably not one of them. Uh, if uh, education were to be used as a tool, I think it's important to look at the content of the education, uh, not just the amount of education. up there.
1: jokes aside, for those of you who were in uh, the uh, audience on Monday, the the new uh, MPA students, uh, and we told you that we were going to teach you economics so that you could make a difference on important policy choices, you could not have a better demonstration than the one Alan Kruger has just given you. I do think there's a very interesting connection, though, between Fred Hitz's point about the definition of war uh, and Alan Kruger's data. When we talk about terrorists, we think poverty, development. But if we talk about soldiers and generals, if we think of this as a war of liberation or a war against a particular uh, hegemon, as many people obviously uh, perceive this, uh, then it's not at all surprising that many of the attackers are very highly educated. It's built into our assumptions about what is going on. So I have failed you. Uh, There are 10 minutes uh, remaining rather than the half hour we hoped, Uh, but I'm going to open the floor, and I will say that I'm quite aware uh, that although this is a a panel uh, on the legacies of September 11th, and I started by saying that it made me uncomfortable that it's such an American uh, response rather than a global one, we do not have any uh, international speakers on the panel. There are many of you in the audience from different countries. I invite you to challenge. Uh, What you've heard, or uh, add your views briefly. Uh, And I will also say that questions generally go up at the end with a question mark and they can be stated relatively crisply. So if you can uh, oblige me in that regard also. So, and we'll collect a few, we're not going to respond uh, all at once. The floor is open. Please come down, use the microphone so that the people downstairs uh, can hear you clearly.
4: the Israeli-Palestinian issue, there is a radical divide, and the divide becomes more radical as get to move toward the elite balance between Europe and the U.S. To the point where one could almost say, given um, the extensive support the European countries provide to the infrastructure of terror in the territories, that the divide comes to the point of proxy war between Europe and the United States. With the U.S., Israel as the US is the as proxy. And uh, the post-Enlightenment, it's various known groups as the European crisis. So, on that issue, is there a radical divide, and how do you see the falls?
1: Hold on, let me just see. Are there, there are no other questions? Okay, go ahead and respond. Okay, there you go. Come on, come on down. <laughs>
4: Um, Mr. Kruger, um, with with the data that you just gave that seems to support the idea that, um, in fact, the uh, political freedom is the major reason behind
5: um, terrorist acts and uh, the kind of mentality um, that
4: produces these attacks, um, why do you think that we do not get any of this data from, from the political leaders and that the administration is not you know, capitalizing on the reality of such data um, in the face of, of convincing the public about the the necessity of of regime changes in Iraq and um, other nations that produce terror. Go
1: ahead.
5: Um, this question will be for uh, Professor Freiberg. Sure. Um, uh, concerning um, any sort of uh, political uh, calculations in determining um, when and possibly to what extent to um, invade Iraq again, um, you had mentioned that um, a lot of this justification would not be based on any uh, crew decisions, uh, you know, uh, domestic political calculations. But uh, you can't help but read in in the newspapers that the Democrats in Congress are trying to push off a vote on a resolution to support such action. until after the election, whereas Republicans seem a little bit uh, uh, more uh, prepared or more willing to go ahead with this um, and to what extent that would uh, play into the ultimate
6: decision.
1: Let's take one more and then we'll.
6: Uh, this question is directed to multiple panel members in the hope that we can st- uh, s- stimulate a brief discussion. Um, many people in many other countries, notably recently Nelson Mandela in his piece in The Times today, have stated that the U.S. should not act alone but should seek to go through the U.N. In the absence of further intelligence material that is more blatant or Um, more obvious in terms of Iraq's things Iraq may have done that could justify an invasion Um, how would this be likely to play out in the UN and um, the, it seems pretty clear what people in the U.S., some people in the U.S. government would like to do about the Iraqi issue. Perhaps people could speak to alternative strategies employed by other parties, such as the EU. Thank you.
1: Thank you. That last question, since I want to answer, we'll uh, we'll stop there, and uh, <laughs> I, let me let me start with Kate, and we'll work down, and you can speak to the specific question and also to this last one.
2: Just briefly, I mean, I think you know you you've hit on the the most. Last right on, the most, on the most serious divide, can everyone hear me? Yes. On the most serious divide between the U.S. and the EU, um, and in fact, that is reflected in the poll data I mentioned about the perception of um, the role of U.S. foreign policy more generally in creating um, uh, disaffection towards the United States, and perhaps playing a role in the attacks. Um, the numbers are still relatively low on the part of the Europeans who believe that, but certainly that is. There's an essential critique of American foreign policy in the Middle East um, on the part of the Europeans. Um, that being said, I think that um, on so many other issues and dimensions, uh, the relationship between the EU and the U.S. is cemented by a series of economic, political um, value relationships such that... Um, you know, I think there's that occurs more on the level of talk and dialogue as opposed to something that would uh, drive a significant um, wedge between that relationship.
1: Well, I think you have the next one. Uh,
5: First of all, I should emphasize that what I showed you on uh, the political freedoms was brand new. Uh, I've been working on that all summer with Ms. Green Salty, who's a graduate of the Wilson School. So uh, you're the first audience to see that. Um, and... Uh, I think the administration intuitively feels this way, but I think they walk a very fine line, and I should leave this to to the political scientists to comment on. Um, You know, uh, the Bush administration is very worried about offending our allies in the region, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. And uh, at the same time, I think the the president has a sense uh, that, that democracy is a good thing for other countries to have, and that it's not a good idea to jail academics, and so on. But they don't seem to go very far out of their way uh, to comment on what Egypt has recently done, for example, until they're pressured uh, to do so. Um, And uh, I think, ultimately, if if, if we are very serious about trying to end uh, terrorism, then uh, probably the best approach is to um, give people who are discontent alternative peaceful ways of expressing their discontentment. Uh, That's what what those data suggest to me. Uh, and I think in the long run that that's, that that probably uh, is the most effective strategy uh, or I'll put it this way a much more effective strategy than, uh, reducing, uh, than reducing poverty not that I'm opposed to reducing poverty
1: Good. <laughs> for the record
7: uh, if I could just comment briefly on that I think that discussion uh, is getting underway I think if you look back over the last 40 or 50 years attitudes of Previous administrations, as well as this one, uh, towards uh, illiberal regimes in various parts of the world, including the Arab world, uh, were colored very much by the uh, pressures of the Cold War, much of the justification for looking aside when uh, regimes that we supported were not, in fact, uh, pursuing the kinds of domestic policies that presumably we would favor. The explanation was a strategic one. Uh, that no longer applies. The Cold War is over, the Soviet Union is gone. Uh, And I think slowly uh, the character of American policy in this part of the world is going to change, in part as a result, and it's going to change in the direction of applying greater pressure on regimes, both friendly and even perhaps more so unfriendly regimes, uh, towards uh, increasing openness and uh, um, democratization. And partly because it's, I think, understood increasingly to be something that's, good for the world and good for the security of the world, and also, of course, because it's something that many people believe is good for people in those countries. Uh, On the question of political calculations regarding the discussion, uh, the domestic debate over Iraq and whether to go to war with Iraq, uh, I'm a political scientist, so I won't claim to be shocked, shocked to discover that there's politics involved in any such discussion, Uh, I think it probably does influence the administration's calculations on the timing of the vote and the discussion of the vote. They probably have concluded that they're more likely to get support for some kind of resolution that would give them uh, the, the freedom to act that they seek prior to the election, probably also assuming that it's more likely in the immediate aftermath of the first anniversary of September 11th. They may also believe that uh, they stand to gain or that the Republican Party stands to gain in the coming elections by forcing discussion on this issue now because they believe uh, the public is closer to their position perhaps than to uh, an opposing position. But, and this was really my point, I don't think that those kinds of electoral calculations uh, have gotten us to the point where we are in this discussion. I don't believe that they're what's driving the discussion in the administration or between the administration and Congress and in the country more generally about whether or not to go to war. After all, uh, if this is what happens, it's an enormously risky undertaking, and I think everybody recognizes that, uh, and the possibility of catastrophe and political catastrophe as well as military and human catastrophe uh, is enormous, and someone who was just worrying about getting reelected, I think, would be not much inclined to take those kinds of risks.
1: I'm more of a cynic. The, it does help keep news about the economy off the front pages, which seems to me to play at least some uh, part in the political calculation. Although I wouldn't uh, disagree that there are larger issues at stake. Uh, Jeff, do you want to res- to uh, respond to the question about whether we should go through the UN and if Fred has something to add? And then I will uh, give my two cents, and uh, we'll have to have to stop. I'll
0: talk about the UN. I'd like to say something about Fred. Uh, <laughs> I have no problem with people saying to those who want to invade Iraq that what's the proof and what's the evidence. The problem is the alternative has proven <clears> to <throat> be profoundly flawed, which is the inspection regime, after all, was tried for a very long time and was aborted by Bill Clinton, <clears throat> not by George Bush. Uh, and those who say there is a non-military way to do this I think that's a respectful position, but a lot more proof has to be brought to bear than we've seen at current that you can have an efficacious inspection regime. It is not, as we learned through bitter experience, just a matter of sending people into Iraq. Uh, there is a very sophisticated government there which learned over years to employ a covert strategy of hiding things, moving things around, and they've had four more years since the last inspector was there uh, to perfect such a system. So I think both sides, if you want, have uh, very high burdens of proof uh, in this. Uh, I won't say I actually agree with much of what my uh, friend uh, Fred Hitt said, but I, I think uh, talking but. about... Um, The current legal system in the United States and its response to terrorism, I I think it's fair to say two things. First, what European countries have done since 9-11 is actually systematically more draconian uh, than what's happened in the United States, an important point. And second, I think that the current administration has done a good, probably not perfect, but good job of deflecting some of the animus that might have been directed to the Muslim population in the United States. I think George Bush performed far better than was predicted on that score and that it should be
3: noted as such. Fred? Uh, now, and I'll amplify that last point with which I wholeheartedly agree. I'm involved with the Washington National Convention. the microphone a year ago, uh, the, 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 the wonderful service of remembrance that took place in the cathedral several days after the event uh, had an imam uh, on the uh, speaking rostrum uh, among other clerics. And I think I agree with Jeff that uh, the administration has done, a, the United States has done a good job about uh, uh, avoiding uh, isolating uh, our Islamic citizens and, and, and terrorizing them. Uh, On the uh, business of the law, we just disagree. I I don't think the fact that the Europeans have incarcerated uh, more of their nationals or uh, 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 suspected terrorists uh, uh, justifies our having, uh, you know, uh, marginally done a better job. But I think this, that... uh, uh, clearly, the rights of U.S. citizens here and those who are here, uh, here under color of law, that is, with a green card, with a duly issued visa, as many of our own students. Uh, you read these horror stories about how long it, it takes to get the re- visas renewed. That's going to be part of perhaps the price of doing business, but nonetheless. I wanted one make like one factual comment. I think it does make a difference that Don Rumsfeld was a championship wrestler. (laughs) He he (laughs) likes to pin people. He's a good combatant. And I think one of the the things that's made Don Rumsfeld such a a, a, a powerful spokesman for this administration is that he steps right up, he says what he thinks, and nobody's, frankly, got the horsepower to take him on in in a lot of these questions. Finally, if we did have intelligence information, intelligence evidence that connected Saddam to the terrorist acts of September 11. Believe me, we would have seen it before now and in spades. Read carefully, if you will, the long statements of uh, the two congresspeople in yesterday's times. Dick Shelby of... Of uh, Alabama, who sees the sun setting on his investigation and is moving on to the Banking Committee and is going to leave it for another committee. But more to the point, that Harvard Law School graduate, the senior senator from Florida, who is very careful on the issue of uh, what precisely uh, taking on Iraq at this point would mean to the president's more important uh, claim of a war against terrorism.
1: I. As a fellow lawyer, I have to just say, uh, the, the British have a Government Secrets Act. Uh, we have a far stronger civil rights and civil liberties tradition than the Europeans, uh, and that shouldn't become our standard. Uh, but let me, uh, let me just say a word about the question of whether we should go to uh, the UN. This is a tremendously important question, and many lawyers, even international lawyers, have said we shouldn't go to the UN because the UN might turn us down and then we'll go in anyway, and that will be even worse. So if we're going to do it, let's leave the law aside uh, and simply do it. I think we need to go to the U.N. for political reasons. Uh, Good international lawyers understand absolutely that international law, like domestic law, is often a political tool. It is entirely bound up uh, with politics, and just as if you want a particular initiative domestically, you... Put forward legislation and work through Congress. Internationally, you want to put together a resolution, put it to the UN. The results will likely be quite surprising. It is a little known and little noticed fact that within a week of September 11th last year, we paid our dues to the UN. Within a week, right? It had been five, ten years where we'd been fighting. Somebody in the White House thought, "Uh oh, you know, we need their support and we owe them a billion dollars. Let's get it done." It got done. Then we went to the UN and we got a a resolution of overwhelming support. It's an extraordinary resolution. It calls on every government around the world to do everything possible domestically to help the United States fight terrorism, including detailed laws and a, a requirement that countries report back to the UN as to what they've done. If we go to the UN, I think we'd be quite surprised at what will happen, and we would be Far more sophisticated in the international political game. One of the things uh, that I think goes with Professor McNamara's analysis of Europe as a civilian power, the Europeans have been remarkably sophisticated at portraying themselves as the power of the rule of law. And we are the rogue superpower. Well, one way to disarm that and to get through the rhetoric and to the underlying common values with which uh, I agree is for ourselves to go to the UN. We're not, we're likely. To To get support, we might get some strings, but as George Bush Sr. understood, those strings are well worth the benefit of that kind of legitimacy. And if we do get turned down, we'll be in a stronger position to say, look, we tried, these are our vital security interests at stake. Now we're gonna have to go with a coalition of countries, but under a different mantle. All right. I don't feel exercised about that or anything. (laughs) Okay. So let me, uh, in closing, I also just want to make one point in response to Alan Krueger's point, which is a political science data that, that I think is very relevant with the economic data, which is a, that political science data shows the most dangerous countries of all are often transitional democracies, right? Mature democracies, absolutely. Dictatorships, stable, but often dangerous. But... In transition, the result could be very, very scary. You're likely to get more radical governments for a while, uh, and it's it's a can of worms that even with that data, it's not quite clear where it points in policy terms. So Aaron Friedberg has given us reasons, in my mind scary ones but compelling ones, for attacking Iraq uh, that are not connected uh, to the domestic political process or personal grudges. Jeff Herbst has explored the underpinnings of American foreign policy and particularly interesting, I think, the analysis of the moral crusade uh, and the reasons for the making it a moral crusade and the role of our new allies as well as our old ones. McNamara has analyzed our relationship with our old allies and I think quite compellingly demonstrated on public opinion grounds that there's much more convergence than you might expect uh, reading the daily press. Fred Hitz has talked about the intersection of foreign policy prerogatives and domestic civil liberties. Watch the the legal pages. If a war against an ism rather than a country is interpreted to give the executive the kind of latitude the executive has had traditionally when it was a war against a country with a possible end, The implications for all of our civil liberties will be uh, considerable. And finally, Alan Kruger has exploded uh, much of the conventional wisdom about terrorism and poverty and education in very powerful ways. I thank my panelists. Uh, Before I invite you to thank them, I want to first urge you to come back in two weeks for the domestic version of this panel. Uh, Chris Eisgruber will be chairing a panel of some of our very uh, distinguished professors talking about domestic policy and we hope that will include the Provost, Amy Gutman. And tonight, I urge you to attend the ceremony on Cannon Green. As I said, this was an intellectual exploration. That will be uh, a more emotional and spiritual uh, service, and I urge you to end this day uh, by joining the university community on Cannon Green. But for right now, please join me in thanking our panelists.